Welcome to Pints and Politics, the May 7th, 2020 edition. Pints and Politics is a weekly discussion program of all things political, coming to you through the facilities of Trent Radio, CFFF, in Peterborough, Ontario, 92.7, on your FM dial. My name is Bill Templeman. Joining me for this online discussion about homelessness and precarious housing in Peterborough during uh, this pandemic are two leaders with a wealth of experience in helping vulnerable individuals and families. Christian Harvey, Executive Director of One City Peterborough, and Megan Hennicam, Executive Director at the Yes Shelter for Youth and Families. Thanks to both of you for joining me today. Now, since the week of March 9th to 13th, most of uh, Peterborough has been on some form of lockdown or quarantine. So for the middle class and uh, more privileged households, the past seven or eight weeks have been like two months of Sundays. Our medical officer of health uh, has told us to stay home, and that is what most of us have done. Great advice, but what if you do not have a home? So what have the last seven or eight weeks been like for uh, those uh, who were homeless or precariously employ- employed before the pandemic? What about those who lost their minimum wage jobs? One of the more egregiously false slogans, in my opinion, about this uh, pandemic has been the following that's always proclaimed with great sincerity. We're all in this together. Well, no, we're not. For many of us, the past two months have seemed like an extended Christmas New Year's break. Unstructured family or solo time with lots of snacking, not enough exercise and too much Netflix. Uh, some people are able to work online. So um, how are people who come to you for help faring? What have you seen at Yes and One City? What about places to sleep, regular meals? What do you think? Uh, maybe I would I would say... Um... Megan is definitely more on the more knowledgeable of what's happening at the shelter level. So, uh, so maybe um, maybe she should speak first because I feel like that she's got very firsthand knowledge of that. Thanks, Christian. It's a little, this is such a strange format, right? Doing this online, I don't know who is going to speak first. Um, <laughs> at, at yes, I mean we we provide an emergency shelter for youth and families. We also have transition uh, youth youth homes throughout the community, and then we have about 120 youth that we are serving who are living in private landlord homes throughout the community. These 120 youth are all youth who have either been homeless or have been very close to homelessness and for for a number of reasons couldn't return home. So the past seven to eight weeks, for, for many of us who are working on the front lines of this has felt like three years. Um, and for the, the folks who are precariously housed and precariously employed, I think it's pretty terrifying. Most of the young people we see uh, are on two ends of the spectrum. We have a group of young people who, like most teenagers, not unlike uh, teenagers who, who are housed and safe, there are some teenagers who think, you know, this is a bit of a hoax and maybe it's not something to worry about. And so a lot of our work is to support them in realizing that it is something that, that they should be concerned about, much like I'm sure many parents are doing for their teenagers at home. There's another group of youth, though, who are living with extraordinary anxiety, are, are really having uh, some serious mental health consequences from this, and who are just consistently asking, you know, what's going to happen next? And, of course, uh, we have no ability to answer that. So it's really tough, really tough for people right now. Right. Uh- 
And, and Christian, uh, at your setting, I, I'm familiar with the, the the meals. I know they're happening outside now. Are what about the volume of people? Are you seeing more? Well, I mean, I, I should say that uh, with the change in organization. Though we still work closely with One Roof, I don't oversee One Roof as a program anymore. So primarily what I'm involved in is housing for uh, individuals coming out of homelessness as well right. as out of uh, prisons uh, and supporting individuals uh, with that reintegration process, both out of homelessness and out of prison. Um, and so right. what we're seeing right now um I would say those in our housing, all of whom or most of whom are, are recently housed. There's the idea of social distancing becomes really uh, quite quite difficult for them. So we've been trying to find different ways in which to support individuals so that they don't have to access programs such as One Roof or other um, other food banks uh, as much to allow them to be able to keep some sort of space. But for individuals who who uh, just don't have enough income to be able to to buy up a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, to allow themselves to stay home becomes really difficult, as well as those who live um, in in they live with other people. What we're also seeing, I'd say, is um, for those who who we work with who are coming out of uh, say prison uh, and are precariously housed, also without a lot of um, relationships, the sense of isolation is huge right now. So people feeling right. uh, feeling really cut off from. From everyone else. I mean, we're all feeling that, but but those who are already sort of often cut off from community and have very little to even lose that has been has people have struggled with hope in that time. Right, Bill. Something else that we um that we don't we, mo- many of us have the privilege of taking for granted is having communication lines. So uh, Christian and I were talking earlier about how challenging it's been to make sure that people have the ability to communicate. We had lots of young people who didn't have phones, tablets, any of those kinds of things. Right. And so for folks who can stay home, we're, most of us are bored and, and you know, some, some people are struggling to stay home and they all have access to internet and TV and Netflix and books and whatever else you do to stay busy. Um, most of the people we serve don't have the disposable income for any of those things. Yeah. Yes. yes. It's hard to stay yeah. bit of a tangent here at my address i do the dog walking most evenings and one of my usual walks is to go east on charlotte from park to george north on george to hunter west on hunter to aylmer and then back down to charlotte and home again uh, while there are a few cars on the roads in the evenings what has really struck me is the complete empty sidewalks downtown there's no one there and i i've, I've made a point of going down friday and saturday nights on my dog walk and there's no one apart from a few other dog walkers and the occasional jogger um, i posted pictures of hunter street uh, the cafe strip you know where all the pubs are and restaurants and so on friday and saturday nights uh, at sunset and normally that'd be bustling but now it's completely quiet so uh, because everything is closed of course so where do your um, my question is i mean where do your guests your clients spend their days and evenings uh, at yes, in the emergency shelter, we do not close. We've never been a shelter that asks people to leave or forces people to oh, leave. Oh, okay. 
Um, so certainly people can stay in the shelter and all of the youth now have their own room in the shelter because we moved the families to hotels. Right. Um, so they do have, have that option. The tricky piece is, is like I said earlier, um, it, we, we have a room, people have a bed, but they're not surrounded with, you know, couches and they don't have a yoga mat and books and Netflix, all those kinds of things. So yeah, I, it's a struggle though. There's nowhere really to hang out. For people, mm. the library's been closed. Yeah. Now, now I understand some beds have been opened at the wellness center out in Brealey, um, in the West End, uh, so that those in need of a place to stay can do so and maintain social distancing. How's that working out? I'll, I'll maybe jump in. I think I, I probably think you should go, most... ahead, go ahead on this one. Yeah. Okay. I think I have the most information on that. So the the space at the wellness center is being run by my colleague, close colleagues at the Brock Mission. So essentially what happened is uh, the Brock Mission was not well set up for social distancing. So the Wellness Center has been opened up and all of the men who were homeless at the time have been moved there. And in terms of how it's working, I'm not on the front lines. I I don't see what's happening. I I don't know what the perspective would be of the men who are at the Wellness Center. But I will say that um, the partners who moved from Brock Mission to the Wellness Center, worked exceptionally hard to try and make that happen very, very quickly. Um, yeah. You know, none of us got warning. I'm sure if we all got warning that this pandemic was happening, we would do a lot of things differently. Uh, <laughs> so they had to make really fast decisions to, to get that to happen. And there was a lot of um, intention uh, and thoughtful work put into uh, hopefully designing something that keeps people safe. Okay. Okay. Now, a uh, next question, uh, and you, you may cringe at my how I'm phrasing this, uh, and, and correct me, but how sustainable is the current social safety net? If that's not a misnomer, and if I can still call it that, uh, how sustainable is it in Peterborough? I mean, how long can the existing network of shelters, food banks, social service agencies, and meal providers last? I mean, I think questions like that, um, so many of us, uh, or so many organizations depend uh, largely on uh, funding from municipal, provincial, and federal governments. So I think it'll be an interesting question to see in the recovery time after all this, what does uh, what do the different levels of government still deem as being um, essential? Uh, my worry is always that they'll, they'll, they will deem what has often happened is programs such as uh, those that fund programs for marginalized individuals uh, often are the first ones in the chopping on the chopping block when trying to save money. So that is a worry. It really depends, I think, on what uh, on what is deemed uh, essential as they try and recover from the economic hit that this has uh, taken on our economy. I think it also depends on our collective memory. So I uh, one mm. I to think of a, a, a silver lining to COVID-19, and, and I think there are many silver linings. Uh, not that, that I wish for us to be in this circumstance, but one silver lining is that it is very clearly highlighted how important a, a, several sectors of workers are. And these are all workers that yes. our society uh, have taken for granted for decades. And I think this has highlighted very clearly how important they are. So I, I hope that as this, as we evolve from this, that collectively we continue to remember how important those people were to us during this crisis and how important they will be, because that, that influences all the things that, that Christian was talking about. Most of us, and certainly I can speak very clearly about, yes, rely heavily on uh, government dollars, but also on fundraised dollars. Yeah. Um, 
I, I think, um, again, depending on how people remember what happened once we're done with this, but we, we will require quite a bit of support. Um, and the other thing that I think is important to highlight is that most organizations that serve marginalized individuals and particularly homelessness are really underfunded on a good day. Um, it's it's a struggle to keep the doors open all the time, uh, financial struggle. And so I, I think that's that's worth mentioning. Certainly, yes, we'll continue to have our doors open during this entire pandemic, I, I hope. Um, I also think it's worth mentioning that the social safety net, and I appreciate that you said if you can call it that, uh, <laughs> it's not sustainable for people who have to rely on it. And it's not lost on me that when we created the CERB for people who recently lost their jobs, the money that was put in place for people um, is, is definitely a massive cut for most people's income, but is also far higher than what we we expect people on Ontario Works and Ontario Disability to to live on. Right, right. Well, you, you captured, Megan, the, the sort of the essence of what I'm wondering here, I mean, the pandemic is like a giant magnifying glass, right? I mean, it reveals all our, shows all our flaws. So, so I'm wondering what are the priority issues that must be addressed to get through this? And you've touched on funding, of course. And at a more strategic level, what should be fixed in the long term so everyone is better prepared to survive the next uh, crisis? Yeah, I mean, I think again, I, I think as we can say in a lot of uh, in a lot of situations, and this isn't uh, this isn't by any means new. And I think Megan and myself have both been saying this for quite a while: is that the need for housing that's appropriate, that's affordable, that's accessible. You know, those sorts of things are really really important. And 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 one of the things that I worry about, and and hopefully this doesn't come to come to pass, but um, what we've become more and more reliant on within within uh, Canada around housing people is through uh, programs like rent supplement programs. And the, the issue with rent supplement programs, I think is, uh, I mean, they're great because they do allow people access to access to housing that they might not have access to, but it does allow us to keep an, uh, an inflated housing market inflated, right? Like it, it, it sort of pretends like it's now accessible to people but uh, puts a lot of individuals at the whim of a change of government. And so if, uh, if, if government chooses to cut um, a program that is funding rent supplements, you have a lot of people that are all of a sudden uh, incredibly vulnerable. And I think a, a situation like this, for me, exposes how vulnerable that it, those individuals are. We need rent supplements and probably, and one of the answers has been, I think, giving more rent supplements, but it, may, it means that more people are then in this place that if in a couple of years it's decided they're not going to fund those rent supplements anymore, they are no longer able to afford this, this, I'd say, artificially high housing market. And what can we do to begin to make the housing market and incomes at a level where they actually, where we don't have to uh, boost them up, where people actually can afford to live in it. Right, and, and you, you touch on uh, another theme that I, I want to, at least to air. And of course, it's it's hard to address right now. But what about employment options for people who are able to work? I know the immediate prospects are rather bleak, but what are the longer term opportunities here? Or are there longer-term opportunities 
for the people who are precariously housed? I mean, again, I think that that my experience in working with both uh, individuals coming out of homelessness as well as individuals coming out of criminal justice is people are 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 longing for uh, some sort of work, right? Like that is, uh, I mean, there are individuals who really don't want it, but that is not the majority. And I, I feel like we've often spoken of marginalized individuals as if you know they they do everything they can to avoid work. Uh, and I, I, that hasn't been my experience. Um, right. But I think we need to cr- – the, the difficulty is is that as our markets and even our nonprofit organizations become more and more for, focused on efficiencies, that means those individuals who might take some work to employ uh, but still have things, lots to offer our organizations, they tend to be written out and there tends to be less and less jobs for them. Um, right. And, uh, yeah, that I think is a difficulty. Yeah, I, I was just aware that, uh, of course, you, you, all of us are aware that uh, uh, temporary foreign workers are, are not coming to Canada this spring to help with the planting, or nor will they be here in the fall for the harvest. Uh, is is this perhaps an opportunity for some people who have trouble getting a leg up and into the job market to, to work in the agricultural sector? I think um... – for for us at yes anyway and as i listen to the conversation it's really hard for people to think about employment if they're struggling to find a safe place to sleep and having uh you know just oh, yeah. their really really basic needs being met and so right. um when you ask about the giant magnifying glass i mean this very clearly very very clearly tells us that housing is healthcare uh housing's healthcare for our entire community people who experience homelessness uh, use the emergency system a lot more than people who are not homeless. And that's not through fault of theirs. It's because of the circumstances they're in. And similar with employment, uh, employment or any vocational program, school included, it's really hard to think about. So we, we need to do a better job at making sure people have housing where a dignified housing that is safe and affordable. The other magnifying glass that this highlights is the inequity uh, in schools as well. Uh, the number of youth that we're serving who have no access to any of the online school programming is um, something that I think is it needs to change and, and we need to sort out as well. Sure. And, of course, the library where they could go and access uh, public computers is closed. <laughs> about attitudes towards uh, vulnerable people will they change as a result of this pandemic now i noticed just yesterday on twitter that an upscale a burger restaurant downtown who probably would prefer to remain nameless took a stab you know a bit of a slap at panhandlers downtown they tweeted out <clears throat> their delight that uh, you know the panhandling was almost gone from downtown police were doing a good job and their feed, their Twitter feed, was soon swamped with criticisms and vows never to eat at the restaurant again. This is just from Peterborough Twitter users. Now, will this pandemic change the general attitudes towards vulnerable people downtown? I hope so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, that's a tough question, Bill. I've had um, I've had some calls, uh, very, very few. I think three that I can think of right now of folks who have called. Yes, specifically concerned around how people who are homeless could uh, exasperate the pandemic. So some of their thinking is, you know, these people are walking around the community, so they could uh, further us all at further harm. And so I've been able to have some conversations with those three individuals anyway around what it can look like for people who are experiencing homelessness. And I think those three certainly left with additional empathy. The flip side is that I've experienced an overwhelming amount of support and encouragement and really kind letters and kind social media messages to share with frontline staff from several people in the community who um, really appreciate the work that's happening. So uh, I don't, I don't know. It would be the answer, but I really hope so. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. think, yeah, I think that's all we can do is hope. I, I mean, there's, there, it's, it's difficult. There was a lot of negative attitude towards marginalized people, especially those experiencing homelessness last year. Oh, Tent City and all. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know that that has been, like, I, I think that burger, burger place stated still what a lot of people think. Uh, I, I mean, I hope that's not the case, but my, I think the reality is. That, that is, I, I spoke at a, in a, in a grade three class, um, last, last, I guess in the fall this year and, uh, and was speaking to them. And I remember at, because the teacher had just had so many of the students, uh, speaking, uh, obviously saying what they'd been hearing at home about, yes. uh, about uh, <laughs> homeless people ruining their city and stuff like that. And the teacher just felt like, she had to do something. And I would say the hardest part about that was you've got these kids who grade three are naturally quite caring and they're asking questions such as one little girl who said, I was driving past Tent City with my dad and he said, they're going to be gone soon. And he was smiling. What do you do with that? And I was like, how do you answer this to this kid, right? I, I think that there is... Um, I mean, hopefully this pandemic changes things, but I think we we as a society have to do some really intentional work of saying, you know, when you said at the beginning that idea of we're all in this together being uh, being an untrue adage. I mean, it, you're right, though, on one level, it, it is it is true in that we are like we are interconnected. We can't ignore it. What happens to a group of, you know, to the more we vilify people experiencing homelessness, the more we live in fear, right? Like these things have these, these we're interconnected and yet we so often um, live as if we're not and we forget that we're yes. we are connected in that way. And the impacts are, are, are huge, both on those who are pushed to the, uh, to the margins, but I think on our own kind of loss of humanity when we do that. So, yeah. Hopefully this crisis highlights how vulnerable we all are. Like none of us have a single ounce of control over the circumstance we're in. And I think many, um, I think a lot of people prefer to think that it was their doing that they're, they're housed and gainfully employed. And, and it is to some degree, but, um, hopefully people through their own vulnerability through this can have some empathy towards the vulnerability who are experiencing homelessness moving forward. And also yeah. the interesting fact, and I don't know if this is talked about, but that the primary kind of um, uh, spreading of this was by the middle and upper classes, right? Like it wasn't, uh, that's the interesting thing is those who were able to travel and uh, and 
And that's just an interesting conversation of the impacts of, of also wealth on our, the negative impacts yeah. of wealth on our society. Yes, yes. Yes, I know the, the, the penny drop for me, uh, was it two summers ago? I, I, uh, volunteered for a few months at, uh, at One Roof, you know, with meal preparation and hanging out a bit afterwards, uh, just talking with people. And the frightening thing that came, that I came away from that experience with is, my God, so many of these people are like me. You know, like, we're, we're not different. I mean, I, I, I was having conversations with people that, yeah, they were wearing perhaps an older pair of jeans than I was. Uh, but we were talking about the same, you know, talking about a bit about the news, about politics, about who's running for this, who's running for that, what will they do? And it struck me that, you know, they're about for fortune. I, I mean, you know, it's not like there's there's this huge gulf in ability or aptitude. No, in some cases, for sure. I mean, you know, obviously there's a, some people with learning disabilities and, you know, the ravages of addictions and so on. Uh, sure, that there's that. But, uh, yeah, now, on a strategic level, what should all the players in, if I can say, your sector, the governments, the service providers like yourselves, the nonprofit agencies and the social services, and I guess that would include services like uh, uh, health and policing and so on, what are the most important issues to focus on with limited resources? And, and I'm thinking perhaps of, uh, is it... Um, Red, uh, Medicine Hat, Alberta, they brought in public housing. I'm thinking of, uh, Finland, where they provided everyone with basic housing. What, what is the most important issue to focus limited resources on? I think, um, it'd be really hard to pick one. So if you force me, I can try, but uh, off the top of my head, I think there's three for me. Sure, sure. Um, my, my opinion would be that, uh, providing a basic income would be one of the one of the biggest things that I think could change the outcome of our entire community and would really change uh, how people are forced to live when they're experiencing homelessness and the inequality that our, our society is, is built on in some ways. The other thing is to focus on building housing that serves the most vulnerable. There's been a lot of housing built that serves people who live in poverty, and, and that's important. I'm not saying it's not important, but most of the time or a lot of the time, People who are experiencing homelessness are um, even excluded from some of those opportunities. So making sure that there's homelessness that is specifically built for people who are housing that is specifically built for people who have experienced homelessness and that targets them is really important. And then the third piece would be to make sure that the resources are in place so that organizations like YES um, can can hire staff who are specialized in supporting people to stabilize once they're in that housing because uh, just you know giving a key and walking away is good. yeah 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 I, and uh, certainly uh, you know I've been given to understand that that how exactly as you said it it's not just saying well here's your place and uh, there's your little apartment or, or or whatever it is your your mini house uh, there you go so, you know. See, at Christmas time, I mean, there's some skills involved that we assume are there. And if you've been institutionalized, for example, Christian, you're talking about people coming out of incarceration. I mean, and if they've been... Like, there's so many young people who who don't get that chance to learn. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And... uh, 
one of the ravages of, of course, we see in the First Nations communities of uh, uh, residential schools is that, uh, now thankfully in our past, but we've had several generations raised by people who haven't been around families growing up because they were away at these residential schools and what the impact of that is. Now, if we look to the future, how far into the future dare you you both gaze? In other words, uh, let's keep it the time frame fairly tight. What's going to happen this summer? And what about in the fall when the cold weather and the traditional flu season both return? I mean, I think this summer You're is going to be a... asking all the hard questions. Yeah. <laughs> summer is going to be an interesting time, I think. I mean, in some ways it depends. Uh, it's interesting because... The flip side of uh, flip side of some of the things like um, you know having police enforce social distancing and and that sort of thing is also that that there are special ways in which um, marginalized people can could potentially be targeted that worry me uh, to be quite honest. Um, I'm, mm-hmm. and that's not to vilify the police in any way, but I just they that this idea of um, yeah, I mean the the again what was brought up around uh, around the individual saying panhandling, uh, rejoicing in the absence of panhandling downtown. Um, you know, depending on how long this goes, uh, that is an interest. There's interesting ways in which that this can play into. Okay, we've got this opportunity. How can we end? You know, what what will happen around if a lot of people are housed? Uh, then that's great, and and there might be individuals uh, and. And maybe we won't have a, an experience like last summer. If not, I think one of the things that happened last summer that I think people will want again is that they were seen. And, uh, and yes, a lot of people don't want to be hidden anymore. Yes. I think that's, uh, I don't know if you can stop people. Well, you can, but I think there's going to be that, that will be an interesting dynamic of individuals who are saying, I don't want to be invisible anymore. Uh, I want to be seen. Yeah, I think it depends on uh, a lot on what we do now um, and what we have been doing. So there, I think something that gets missed is there's a lot of things that are are going well um, around homelessness. There's always a lot we could be doing better, but um, between January first and now, the there's a group of, of organizations that have been working very closely together to rehouse as many people as possible. There's been 193 people. Uh, in those in in the last four months, who have been housed through the homelessness system um, in Peterborough? In Peterborough, yes. Wow. And and you know we know exactly who those people are. We know where they went. But the the struggle is just that there's for those there's those 193. There's still tons more who still don't have access to housing. Yeah. So I don't know what will happen this summer or in the winter. We're just trying to get through this crisis. I think, but. There are things that are working. We just need to do it. We need, we need more to make that continue to happen. Sure. Now, part of the view into the future, of course, is, is health care and prevention. What what happens to uh, clients of both your organizations in terms of, well, uh, pick a mundane example, uh, a flu shot? How how, are, how do they get that service? Um, I, I don't know what will happen 
given the con given COVID-19 and where we'll be at this winter, but certainly at yes, uh, every year we host a flu shot clinic that Peterborough public health provides. So that that's run right out of our building. Anyone who's uh, in the shelter or any of our housing or staff, any, really anyone affiliated with us could get their flu shot done there. I, I know that was one example of many, but. Okay. One, one I have an answer to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. Well, I mean, <laughs> Sorry to switch, put you on spot, but these are questions that all of us have been asking as this thing unroll, unfolds. And, and the reason I, I ask about the long term is that, uh, like so many, I've been trying to learn about this. I, I'm no uh, epidemiologist or virologist or medical professional, but I, for my own family, I'm trying to learn a bit more. And I've been reading a few pieces saying that this could go on for two years. <laughs> I'm uh, it sort of takes my breath away because uh, I listened to a podcast about the what I when I was a child what I was taught in school was the Spanish flu in 1918 right after the end of World War One and that thing came in three waves and it mutated each time and, and so. Uh, I guess that's part of the motive of my question for yourselves is long term, what does this look like for vulnerable people? And wh- what can we do uh, other than the huge systemic fixes that, of course, governments always, ba- you know, usually back away from uh, spending a lot of money on the vulnerable. Um, what can we do to, to head things off at the pass, as it were? If this is, if we're going to be in this for two years, um, or any length of time, I mean, the urgency has always been there for anyone who works in homelessness, but I hope that the urgency becomes much larger than just those working in homelessness to actually house people immediately, because that's the greatest solution, um, for all of us right now, and it's certainly yeah. the greatest solution for people without a home. But, um, yeah, I don't know, Bill. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean go ahead, Kristen. I was going to say, like, it's it's been neat to see we we've been working with some landlords and I know Megan you have as well who maybe thought they couldn't do anything and are actually making a huge difference right like with and and these landlords that we're working with typically aren't your uh, large I mean they're usually the ones we're working with usually own one or two houses right like it's not kind of your, your yeah, big yeah, yeah. and uh, and that's been really neat to see okay I'm uh, these these small landlords uh, just willing to step up and say, okay, I'm going to take a risk, and it is a risk, and uh, and and really uh, step forward and say, I'm gonna I'm going to respond in the small way that I can, uh, and and each time a landlord does, that's you know, that's three, four, five people that are that are given a a place. Yeah. Now, what didn't uh, an individual buy a house and turn it over to uh, uh, homeless, uh, vulnerable sector homeless people? Uh, we have a few. We have a few uh, individuals who have who have bought houses, and uh, and you know it's a it's a cool model because they don't lose money on it. Oh. They don't make a lot of money on it either, but they uh, we manage the house for them. 
Uh, and yes, there's a similar thing. I, I think Megan can speak to it. But. Yeah, we, we do. We, we have some landlords who, who have done similar things for us. Uh, also, there's a, a group called Built for Zero Peterborough that Yes is a part of and other organizations like Yes in One City have similar experiences where landlords turn over homes they've purchased. Yes also is fortunate to own a few different properties and we've been really, ambi- really, really aggressively, uh, I guess, uh, what's the word? Why am I blanking on the word? Really uh, aggressively expanding our youth housing program. So it's something else that we're trying to do. We, we unfortunately suffered a flood uh, in November, a fairly significant flood in one of our homes. So we're trying very, very hard to get that fixed immediately so that uh, eight young people can move into that house out of the shelter. Um, so there's a lot of work happening to try and develop stock for people, whether that's through finding people who are land, willing landlords or through um, renovating and, and purchasing different properties ourselves. So, uh, Megan, if I could follow up with you for just a bit, how does this work for the landlord? The landlord owns the house, continues to own the house, but says uh, says to yourself or, or to organization like like Christian say okay um, I want to help H- how does money flow or does money flow certainly money flows it's 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 very very similar to if they went to the private market you know just selected someone from Kijiji but in this case uh in, in Yes's case and I'm sure it's similar with one city we make the connection so it's someone from uh from in our case the shelter and they do pay rent to the landlord uh, in Yes's case, we have a trustee program. So most of the young people who are placed in landlord homes, we have 120 youth that we're supporting in these kinds of arrangements. Oh. Uh, those young people are all renting from private landlords, and we support the young people to be successful in the home. So it gives the landlord a contact so that they have someone to call. Um, and the trustee helps to make sure rent is paid on time and that we keep youth on track. It doesn't. It doesn't always go perfectly, but it often – Works very, very well. So where does the money that the uh, the youth, let's say in your case, uh, make it, where does that money come from? Is that part of their ODSP or their uh, is it welfare? I mean, where does that cash come from? Uh, in, in our case, there's lots of different places. So some young people are working, whether it be part-time or full-time. Um, in some cases, it is ODSP, Ontario Disability, or Ontario Works. Uh, in our right, case, okay. we have a lot of young people who are receiving income from the child welfare system. These are, are youth right. who grow as children in the child welfare system. Um, really very common. It's a huge percentage of youth who experience homelessness who were, were part of the child welfare system. So they're paying a, a reduced rent? Depends. In some cases, they're paying a fairly normal rent. Um, most of the time, the landlord's we work with, and I don't know what's happening in your case, Christian, but um, most of the time the landlord will put something in place where they at least break even. They're not necessarily making tons of money like some of the REITs or other other larger landlords would, but they get their bills right. covered at least. Yeah, that's what we. That's how we we do it. Is that we we come up with a we basically act bill as the agent of the landlord, and so we man we become nonprofit property management. Uh, to make it ah. more accessible for landlords. So, uh, so, so when landlords have approached us and said, we'd like to house marginalized people, but it's something that we don't know anything about and it's been intimidating for us, we then become a nonprofit property management uh, for them and make sure it, it, we, so we, we make sure rents are paid, uh, and those sorts of things. And in some houses support in other houses connect, um, people with supports. 
Ah, okay. Well, that's great to know. I've got a question that we've been treading around, I guess, for the last uh, a half hour or so. So let me blurt it out. I mean, what could individual citizens do to help both in the short term and long term? I, I can jump in for yes. Certainly, yes, we rely so, so heavily on fundraising uh, and on the generosity of the community. So the best and biggest way someone could help uh, for us would be to make a donation and in particular to sign up to be a monthly donor just because we can predict our income if we have people who have signed up to be monthly donors. Without that right. income, we have no ability to continue providing really critical services to youth and families. Right. Um Lots of people, yes, in our case, have chosen to donate food and soap, different hygiene uh, tools, and cell phones or tablets or different communication tools that they no longer need. So that that's always helpful. Um, and a lot of people have been sending very considerate messages of hope and encouragement to our frontline staff, which goes a really long way. Uh, they're unsung heroes in this in that they're working 24 7 365 days of the year in really challenging conditions um, and right. then i would say advocating uh, on behalf of people who are vulnerable advocating to different levels of government to make sure that there's a, a really good plan put in place for people who are experiencing homelessness and who have experienced homelessness um, and that we don't forget about them when all of these different measures start to lift and we go back to business as usual, I hope that people can help us to um, keep in mind the the vulnerable people in our community, even when we get back to normal. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, uh, that's exactly is that if um, I think that political, uh, political will, you know, what people want money to be spent on, what politicians hear, this is what we prioritize, what the community prioritizes, that's, that's what gets the money spent on. And I think, often why it's easy to cut social services and those sorts of things is there might be an outcry for a week or so and then it's done but i right. think if if the if we as communities say we prioritize uh we prioritize making sure that everyone has a place to live everyone has uh has their needs met i think that if we prioritize that as a as a as a, a city province a nation i think that then we will begin to see those policies in place that we won't see as we're trying to, to, to heal the economy after this. We won't see, you know, the, the most marginalized sacrificed. So I think people mm. need to continue voicing after this is all done. I also would say uh, donations are incredibly helpful for us as well. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, uh, as we wind down here, um, what should people take away who are listening to this, insight, ideas, things they could do? Uh, you, you've both made the strong case for donations. Uh, what should they take away as we move into warmer weather? People are going to be out at least walking about a bit more. If the lockdown begins to be loosened somewhat, you know, we're not maybe not going to have concerts in Del Carey Park, but we're going to see more people outside. What should people remember? Uh, something I'd like people to take away is that there, we people don't have to experience homelessness. It's not something that just has to be the case in our communities. And there, we know what to do. There is a very um, there, there's evidenced practices to solve homelessness. We know how to do it. 
uh, we as a community and as a country need to prioritize it to make it happen. And so as people start to go throughout the community again, I hope they realize that um, it's not a mystery. It can be solved. People can have their needs met. And while we wait for their needs to be met and wait for a better solution to be put in place, let's at least be compassionate and kind to people. Yeah, I think think we're able, like what this shows us is that we're able to come together, at least in some way, for the benefit of, you know, those who are, we actually came together in this time, um, our governments, our people, you know, and 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 took some bold moves and to, and made sacrifices so that everyone had some level of safety. What would it be to actually take that outside of pandemic and say, okay, we know we can do this. We did it. We just did it. What would it be to do this beyond just around a pandemic? But if we were to see things like homelessness, like inequality, in a similar light, because it does kill. Um, people, it does have huge impacts. What would it be yes. able to do that? Uh, I think for me, this proves we can do it. We, what, what would it take for us to have the will to do it? Great. Uh, so thank you so much, Megan and, and Christian, for taking the time to do this. Much appreciated. This is Bill Templeman. Thanks very much. An important footnote to this program, if you'd like to volunteer or get involved in any way with uh, either of these organizations, or of course make a donation, you can go to their websites. The Yes Shelter is www.yesshelter.ca, that's Y-E-S-S-H-E-L-T-E-R.ca, or uh, One City Peterborough, that's www.onecitypto.ca. There's also, of course, the Brock Mission, Cameron House, other agencies.